Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Brittany Mangelson, and today we have on two familiar faces, and I guess two familiar voices, because this is a podcast. Um, we have on Robin Linkhart and Katie Langston um, and myself, and we are going to be talking about the nature of God, um, specifically how it relates to the feminine divine um, and maybe some different um, ways that we've seen God in the past and how community of Christ sees God, how the broader Christian faith sees God and, uh, and how that all ties into gender and, um, the feminine divine. So I am really excited for this. Uh, this is an episode that I've wanted to get going for several months and we are finally sitting down and recording it. So welcome Robin and Katie. Hey, Brittany. Good to be here. So let's let's start with just your basic background of the Trinity. So let's just dive right on in, and I'm going to pass it on over to Katie, and she's going to give us some background on just the classic Trinity model um, in the Christian tradition. Sure. This is such a huge question that, you know, uh, hopefully um, we could be both concise and coherent, which, uh, you know, I'm not holding my breath, but we'll see what happens. I think that the first thing to understand in the development of the doctrine of the Trinity in Christianity is to recognize that Christianity is a movement uh, or a faith tradition that emerges out of Judaism. Um, and and uh, an ancient Israelite or ancient uh, Jewish tradition differs from uh, other traditions um, in the ancient Near East in that uh, over time they begin to develop a monotheistic understanding uh, of God um, and eventually begin to see God as uh, the the creator of the universe profoundly other than humanity and the most kind of the most powerful force uh, in the universe the, um, the source from which the universe the world the cosmos and all of us come into being so Ancient Israel understood themselves to be chosen by this God. They uh, understood themselves as the chosen people, and this played a really important role um, in both uh, their um, theology as well as their politics and their sense of themselves. And so as the kingdom of Israel developed, um, David was set apart as the Messiah, uh, a term that means anointed one. Um, and which has explicitly royal and nationalistic connotations. Um, and the promise that Israel understood about themselves was that the kingdom of David would never falter because they were chosen. Of course, then the unthinkable happened and Israel faltered. Uh, Israel was conquered by Babylon. Her elites were sent into exile. Uh, and this created a massive theological crisis uh, as, as the people of Israel wrestled with what it could possibly mean to be a people of promise when the promise seemed to be broken. Um, it was a national, a national crisis of faith. And despite their belief that, that Yahweh, which is what they called God, that Yahweh is the God over all, was, was their God less powerful than they thought, to actually have a God who keeps God's promise. And so the the exile is a flash in Judeo-Christian history. Uh, a lot of 
how what we have in the Bible now, particularly the Old Testament, only the Old Testament, right? But a lot of what we have in the in the Old Testament now emerges out of the exilic period as the people wrestle with what it means to be God's people when it seems as if God uh, has broken God's promises. And as they wrestled with that and they dealt with their heartbreak, their sorrow, um, a new understanding began to emerge, reinterpreted their past in light of the present, um, and looked forward to a day when David's kingdom would be restored and a new king, a new messiah, would be raised up. And the new messianic age would take on cosmic and world-changing proportions. There would be lasting peace. God's spirit would be poured out on all people, not just Israel, and all the nations rails God. And this became the bedrock of their hope um, uh, as they look forward to this messianic. So fast forward to the time of Jesus. The Jews uh, are under the rule of Rome, and this is a period uh, when many would-be messiahs rose up, all of whom failed. Uh, and, and Jesus of Nazareth was a, a teacher. Uh, he was a political agitator. He amassed a small following from uh, a, a rather obscure part um, of the Roman Empire and was brutally executed by Rome for treason, his crucifixion. And he had all the trappings of another failed messiah, except that something was different with, with Jesus, and that was that his followers began saying that Jesus had been resurrected, that he had raised from the grave, that they had seen him and eaten with him and touched him. And at the same time, the early Christians who, who you know, at this point are a sect of Jews, have profound spiritual experiences and begin to feel mystically connected to God through this person um, that they call Christ, which is Greek for the same, the same, uh, the, the word Mashiach or Messiah um, in Hebrew, um, Christ is that same word, it's anointed one. So, so they're calling, begin to call Jesus their king. And in light of the resurrection, which they'd neither anticipated nor expected, they begin to recognize Jesus's divinity. And this causes considerable theological disruption because they had to begin to wrestle with what on earth that all meant. Remember, emerging out of Judaism, they are profoundly monotheistic. Um, so they're having these experiences with Christ. At their, their, as the church begins to form, they're also having these experiences um, with uh, what they're calling the spirit, spirit, or the spirit of Christ, or the Holy Spirit. And so this group of people who are, who are deeply monotheistic begin to have to wrestle with what they're having, they're having. And so over a period of really a couple of centuries, through testing and trial, you know, theological controversies arise, is, uh, is Jesus, um, you know, uh, on the same, like, how is Jesus divine? In what way is he divine? Is he the same um, level <laughs> as, as God? What does it mean to say that, that there is one God and yet these distinct ways of experiencing over time? So they begin to recognize that there are there are three persons um, and one God. And, and so God is the one in three and the three in one. And that each of the persons of the Trinity, the same substance, the same essence, the same, there's not a hierarchy, right, within, within the Trinity. And, uh, and it's important to keep in mind, um, especially for those of us who might come from a Mormon background, um, that 
that the starting point is profoundly different than how we might might have understood it uh, as Mormons. That is, that remember, coming out of Judaism, God is not uh, a, a dude hanging out on a planet, right? God is not an exalted human being, but God is a force. God is wholly other. God is different from humanity, and God creates. Uh, um, and and so the the three the three persons of the Trinity or or the nature, you know, what Robin was saying about um, that they're the essence or um, the substance of God. This this is to be understood um, as as emerging out of a non like anthropomorphic conception of what God is to begin with, which I think is important. Um, it can, it is and can be a mind bender. The thing that I find most compelling and most beautiful about the, the doctrine of the Trinity is the understanding that God is relationship, that God is love. If God is to love, then God must love within God's self. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but the fact that there are three and not two challenges us away from binary thinking. Um, and and so the way I kind of like to think about it, if we think about God as the creator, the triune God as the creator is this this dance, right, between the persons of the Trinity, this where each is kind of moving forward and going back uh, constantly to make space for one another um, within uh, this power, this force that we call God. This dance, this love, this spark, this activity is itself the force and the power that governs the universe, that the universe is at its core held together and created and emerges out of cosmic eternal love. So I don't know how helpful that was, but there's a little brief (laughs) thing on the Trinity. (laughs) I think that was really helpful. I know I've attempted to explain it to some people and I have not done it as eloquently as you. So thank you for that. Um, Robin, can you give us an overview of how Community of Christ sees God um, and maybe uh, a little bit of background if that has changed in recent decades or um, just what the understanding of Community of Christ is with God? Sure. Um, I think it's important to understand that Community of Christ, the reorganization, uh, has been faithful to the earliest restoration beginnings, and we have always been Trinitarian. So you can see evidence of that early in the movement, the restoration movement, in the preface of the Book of Mormon, in the testimony of the three witnesses, which says, and the honor be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, which is one God. Uh, we see it in early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, for example, section 17.5 in Community of Christ Doctrine and Covenants, which is LDS 2028, uh, which beareth record of the Father and of the Son, which Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God, infinite and eternal without end. So even though we find these kind of statements about the identity and the nature of God um, that are truly reflective of the doctrine of the Trinity in the earliest days of the Restoration. Um, 
through to the 1960s, Community of Christ really did not spend a lot of time studying the Trinity or talking about it. I mean, that was a time when we were really trying to carve out our identity and claim and focus on the issues that are related to being the one true church. So while we remain Trinitarian, Um, We did not escape the influence of the early church um, as it began to move toward Christian primitivism. And that is, that's a, a way of thinking about Christianity that attempts to recapture the essence of Christ's church in the first century. So trying to go back and claim and capture that original way of being, uh, which we know is, is a, as a movement, Christianity is a movement, so there's no such thing as the perfect time of the church. But a lot of people in the early 19th century, mid 19th century, aspired to this Christian primitivism. And we have some of the fingerprints of that on the reorganization. So by the Nauvoo period, we see a new pattern of theological innovation and practices emerge under the leadership of Joseph Smith. Uh, as the Nauvoo period uh, really had a deeper integration of the primitives movement. And that kind of effected the separation from the larger Christian tradition. And uh, language that's used by the Christian tradition, uh, we lost some of that in the movement and the language that kind of helps us talk about the Trinity. So, Community Christ is still Trinitarian. We had not been talking about it a lot or studying about it, and we had separated ourselves from the larger Christian tradition, which had an impact on us to some degree. Um, Then, about 1960s, Community of Christ really started to have our first missionary efforts globally. We had been in some places, but in 1960, we really pushed out into new areas. And part of that experience brought us into relationship with people who did not know the story of Jesus at all. And we found ourselves, instead of trying to share with people that we were the one true Christian church, that we were working with people who um, wanted to hear about Jesus because they'd never heard of him before. So we were uh, converting people to Christianity, not to a one true church form of Christianity. So we found ourselves really in this kind of awkward moment in the life of the church needing to rediscover our Christian roots and in the process of that reclaim some language of the Christian tradition that really helped us share about the God that we know and experience as three persons, these uh, three God presences who live together as one holy community. So when Katie talked about this relationship, that that is the central part of the doctrine of the Trinity that is so important because this threefoldness that is made one in a perfect communion of love. Um, Katie talked about that, that love relationship, that dance, and there is not one that is greater than the other. And as we think about uh, the peaceable kingdom, the coming of God's reign, uh, peace on this planet, we vision a perfect community where none is higher than another. So 
um, that Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the words that we use, they were already in our sacramental language. They're in our sacrament of communion prayers. They're in our baptism and confirmation prayers. It's all through our scriptures. But we had somehow inadvertently gotten to this place of kind of a warped image of Trinity where we were seeing God or God the Father or Heavenly Father as like maybe being the real God and Jesus was maybe like this junior God and the spirit was this kind of, you know, misty, floaty uh, sense of being that maybe was lesser than Jesus, but we're not really sure. So even though we were deeply rooted in the Trinity, uh, we had kind of slipped off into this uh, kind of warped understanding of the Trinity. Heresy. It was heresy. Yeah, mild, mild heresy. So as we really re- rediscovered our Christian heritage and began to reclaim some of the language that we needed to talk about God, um, something else was happening around that same time uh, in the U.S., and that was, well, actually, the Western world was a second wave feminism. And so as we were beginning to ask some important questions about maybe we need to be taking a more in-depth look at our Christian heritage and reclaim some of it. We also had a lot of um, people asking difficult questions about the life and uh, equity of women. So we deepened our understanding of the Trinity. We began to understand that uh, women were living in an oppressed condition And uh, we began to be aware of patriarchy and how we had, in many, many ways, propagated a male imaging in the church and how we talked about God and priesthood and authority. And uh, so as we were beginning to explore the Trinity, we were at the same time beginning to look in the mirror and understand patriarchy and how the fingerprints of that were also uh, all over our language about God. So um, we, since the 1960s, and especially in the last two or three decades, um, we have become much more fluent in our understanding, depth of understanding, and having a language and vocabulary to talk about the Trinity. And I think part of our Uh, awareness of integrating female into the life of the church has been our awareness that uh, female is, in fact, part of the mystery of God. Um, And so now we actually have a, um, a policy of inclusive language in the life and ministry of community of Christ. We'll, we'll post a link to that document um, where in our, deepening understanding of Trinity, we also recognize how many different names we can have uh, for God. So it's been a journey of understanding for Community of Christ. As Katie said, um, talking about the doctrine of the Trinity and trying to wrap our heads around it can be kind of a brain warping experience. I think it's important to understand The doctrine of the Trinity is about relationship in the Godhead and that it is not intended to be a black and white way of thinking about God. It kind of invites us into 
um, trying to be fully aware and present with this mystery of God um, and trying to live in a way that reflects that divine dance, like Katie said, that relationship where none is higher than another, but in full mutuality with one another. And for Community of Christ, that speaks profoundly to our journey uh, with God, partnering with God to realize um, the peaceable kingdom here on earth. Thank you. Um, that was really interesting and exciting. I, I really like that. I like that it's been a journey for Community of Christ um, in, in understanding the Trinity. And I know that that gives me hope on an individual level um, as I continue my journey with the Trinity. So I, just to kind of bring this full circle with our listeners, um, I'm going to just briefly go over the LDS concept of what they would call the Godhead. Um, and this is between Katie and I, we were having conversations about this. Um, and it's what sparked our podcast. So Katie and I were talking about this, um, and, and a lot of our friends uh, kind of hold on to this concept of Heavenly Mother, and that's what got us to um, start talking about Trinity and nature of God and feminine divine and how they all intersect. So a brief overview, the LDS Church um, focuses on the 1838 version of the first vision, um, where God the Father and Jesus Christ distinctly come down um, as separate people. And to be honest, that's about as far as the theological conversation has extended um, on the nature of God within the LDS Church. Um, and the reason why it is important and where the idea of Heavenly Mother comes in uh, is it's all tied to the temple and the endowment and ceilings. So essentially Mormons believe that they have the capacity, if they are righteous, to become a god or a goddess if they are a woman. Um, and polygamy is tied into this really intimately as well. Um, and essentially, God the Father created the earth, and so we have potential, men have potential to create their own earths. Um, plural, maybe, that's debatable. Um, but, but that they will be able to gain that internal increase is how they would word it. Um, and that includes women, and that includes the women that would become a heavenly mother. And so essentially there's multiple gods. Um, Mormons would say that they worship one God, um, but it kind of becomes this like plotted out map uh, when you take an expanded, a, an expanded look at what... Um, the Mormon cosmology will eventually look like according to their beliefs. And so men have potential to become gods, to create their own planets with their priesthood power. And women have the potential to be sealed or married to men and to become a heavenly mother. And nobody really knows what that looks like, um, what the role of heavenly mother. There's a lot of uh, feminism, feminists um, within the church that have tried to get that conversation started, but there's been um, no revelation, no doctrines. Um, she's kind of just this shadow figure. But they do say that Heavenly Mother is um, giving birth to spirit children, um, essentially the, the children that we have on earth right now. Um, the spirits have to be birthed before they come here. And so as far as um, Mormon theology goes. Um, that's, that's about it. And, uh, it, it's a really, it's a, it's a source of 
pride, I would say, for some Mormons. Um, and they feel like we have this big feminist theology because uh, we actually have a heavenly mother. I say we. <laughs> they actually have a heavenly mother claimed and named. But from my perspective, and in talking to Katie, we're both formerly LDS, um, the concept of the Trinity is actually a lot more liberating for the feminine divine. Because personally, I mean, I'm a mom of three kids, but I don't necessarily want to be giving birth for the rest of forever. And so for me, giving up the concept of Heavenly Mother was actually pretty easy because when I actually took a step back and looked at what her role is in Mormonism, um, it fell apart pretty quickly. And so um, all of this, everything that Katie said, everything that Robin said, everything that I just said, um, was kind of the crossroads of what brought us to this conversation today. Um, and so we are going to talk a little bit about, I know Robin mentioned patriarchy and we're going to continue that conversation of, you know, how does patriarchy impact Christianity and what has it done to the female voice and the female, um, not only on, you know, a congregation, a congregant level, um, but with God. Yeah. So, I mean, I think like just to like lay our cards on the table or whatever, I think that it's Brittany, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it would be fair to say that the intention of, of this conversation is not to like make fun of or disparage or destroy any hope that some folks might have in the concept of Heavenly Mother, because I know that that is a very comforting teaching to a lot of people. Um, and to the extent that it works for you, that's great. I think what we're hoping to do in this conversation is to open up another way of looking at it and to share like our journeys uh, as to why the Heavenly Mother concept kind of fell apart for us and ultimately upon reflection didn't seem as robust. Um, but it's not about um, trying to tear down anyone's faith or hope or anything like that. For sure. For sure. For we sure. We know Thank that you. this is the sensitive topic for some of our friends. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's it true. Um, and, and I will say, you know, I get asked um, by Community of Christ people a lot about Heavenly Mother. Um, I think I actually have two messages right now that I need to get back to to explain this stuff. Um, yeah. So it is a, it's a topic of conversation and I think a topic of confusion. Um, and so, yeah, that's what my goal is, is just to clarify and to um, just show that, you know, the divine feminine is found in other models um, and in other churches, which, which is exciting because I don't think that she gets enough conversation. So we're just getting the conversation going. So now we're going to move in to talk about uh, patriarchy in Christianity um, a little bit more broadly and and how that has impacted the Christian movement. So Robin, do you want to get us started on that part of the conversation? Sure. I think it's important for us to understand that the uh, social system of patriarchy has been around for over 7,000 years. So religion emerged against this backdrop of uh, male dominance, male power, and as people um, began to experience uh, a presence of a divine being and for the Judaic and then the Christian traditions uh, understood that in a sense of monotheistic understanding of the divine being um, that it was pretty natural and normal 
for um, humankind to begin to see that divine presence in the uh, image or language um, that was characterized as being male. Uh, now, I also want to underscore that the classic doctrine of the Trinity was really trying to talk about relationship and not about maleness. So that father-son relationship, that Abba, as Jesus prayed to Abba, was to underscore this intimate uh, relationship of boundless love and grace that was mutual and egalitarian. Um, the patriarchal lens of that humans carried, really um, imposing this maleness on God, um, began to take shape in ways that spoke to power, uh, naming God, naming Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, that uh, image of royalty, rule, um, language that was anthropomorphic, androcentric, uh, really began to shape not just an understanding of God, but an understanding of power in the Christian church. So we see uh, language in uh, scripture, in hymns, in worship, in uh, poetry are using these, it's just totally male dominated. And of course, the power structure of the society we live in, uh, women did not have an equal standing with men by a long shot. So this just plays out generation after generation after generation. And of course, the people that are educated are nearly 100% male, you know, the great fathers of the Christian tradition, uh, theologians, thinkers, prophets, um, all male. So it it's not um, a shock that that developed in that way, but we need to also recognize that it has done great harm, uh, not only to women, but it has um, warped our understanding of God in a way that's not helpful. So in recent generations of Christianity, many have attempted to reclaim an understanding of God that is inclusive of not just de- gender, but race, ethnic background, uh, sexual orientation, an image of God as we're created in the image of God, an image of God that we can talk about and look at and see our own reflection coming out of this God that is inclusive of all humanity. So, um, Some of the things that have been really helpful to us on this journey have been the feminist movements. And I would say particularly in the second wave where we had a lot of uh, female theologians that did a lot of research and produced a lot of scholarly work that helps us kind of peel back the layers of how we got to this very androcentric understanding of the Godhead and how it has robbed us of being able to fully embrace the, the all of who God is and how God leads us into relationship with one another uh, in a very egalitarian, mutual way. Katie? Wow, that was, yeah, I think you hit on, on all of the key points. I, I also, you know, just want to point out that female images of God exist in Scripture, and, and sort of reemphasize that in the 
Judaic and the Christian concept of God, God is not a person, right? So God is not a man who has a wife, right? That, that God is not of the same species, if you will, um, as humanity. And so I, I think that coming from, again, coming from a Mormon perspective, that's really hard to wrap your mind around, I think. But it's extremely helpful to to understand that because it provides some space. Um, it provides some fluidity, if you will. And then when you look, when you go back then to the text of the Bible and you see images where God is described as mother or God is described as giving birth or God is compared to uh a hen or mm-hmm. any of the of the beautiful images uh, uh, you can understand that that's no more literal <laughs> than the conceptions of God as father or dude. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, what you're saying, Katie, about scripture is just full of feminine images for God, and I think it's important too to understand that as we step back and try to embrace God as being inclusive of all expression of gender, that we are not saying that male images should never be used when we speak of God. But there there should be a a wide variety. Um, One of my, and even Jesus uh, in the New Testament is, is using this feminine imagery as people talk about him or as he speaks. Um, For example, I think in Luke and Matthew, I love this when he says, how oft will I gather you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? Um, How I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks and you would not. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's such beautiful imagery where even Jesus, who is the one of the three who is embodied as a, as a human, even in his um, being, he's encompassing the feminine and the masculine uh, mm-hmm. and nature, images of nature that we would not associate with one gender or the other. Right. So we've um, started talking about how we can include all genders um, in God um, found in scripture. Um, How else are we able to see the feminine divine or more feminine aspects of God within the Trinity? So I think um, clearly we see this in the relationship of the Trinity, this egalitarian, mutual, um, mutually beneficial totally reciprocal relationship uh, that moves and flows and um, that the nature of that relationship uh, really gets us away from this dualistic or binary thinking where uh, in our world still there are male images that are seen as better and female images that are seen as lesser. Uh, it, the image of the Trinity really integrates um, all of that into one being um, that really liberates, as um, Brittany talked about, the Trinity liberating the divine feminine. It does that really effectively, and it calls us into a um, a way of being in a community with one another. I really like a quote that I read. I believe it's from Rosemary Rather. 
She says the goal of feminist theology is not to make women equal partners in an oppressive system. It is to transform the system. So um, as we reclaim the feminine in the nature of God, it actually points us into looking at all the ways that we live in twisted relationship with one another and calls us into this way of being uh, in a transformed relationship with all people. So it it calls us into um, abolishing poverty. It calls us into uh, advocating on behalf of those who are oppressed in racism uh, and we've, we find ourselves as women liberated in this image of a God that um, defies a definition in black and white and invites us to paint this image of God in full living color and um, to reclaim uh, the mystery of God, to understand that in our humanness, even... Uh, the best theologians and the greatest prophets as they speak of God are only scratching the surface of human understanding of the divine. Yeah. And, and uh, one thing that strikes me uh, as you're talking about that, Robin is, um, is the, the reversal that is the gospel, right? So if I think, um, you talked about a little bit earlier, you talked about the ways that the masculine language of kingdom and, you know, triumph and those sorts of things were appropriated then by the powers of the empire to uphold systems of oppression and violence. But if you look at the kingdom that Jesus brings, it's, you might, <laughs> you might be tempted to call it feminine right? Mm -hmm. It is, uh, it's a kingdom of openness. It's a kingdom of self-giving. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of not of coercion, but of uh, invitation and grace and peace. And, and in and of itself, it's not the, the, the dominant power that we understand um, when we look at kings and presidents and militaries mm -hmm. uh, that we might be tempted to term, you know, more masculine. And, and so that's why it's quite natural that in Jesus ministry, you know, that women are constantly uh, part of his movement, that they are his disciples and apostles and witnesses and preachers and leaders because of the inverted nature of mm -hmm. this reality that that Jesus is ushering in as the Messiah. Yeah, for sure. I think I think too as we um, and some of us using feminine language for God or images for God feels really awkward at first. But I think as we allow ourselves to um, just kind of experiment with that and to do some meditation. Uh, imaging of God as feminine, we can kind of let ourselves rest into this softness um, mm -hmm. that we can begin to understand and experience in God. And for some of us who grew up 
thinking of God as like this critical parent that's making a mark on our tablet with our name on it every time <laughs> we mess up. Um, and I know for myself, as I really began to explore and rest in this feminine dimension of God, it really helped me um, have some healing in my relationship with God and to understand um, the beloved uh, nature of God's love for us, um, each one beloved, and to rest into that softness. Sometimes I think about my grandmother and just the circle of her arms and the softness of her body and how, um, how complete that felt as a young child. And I think it, it really helps us in many ways find some mending in our relationship with God that brings us very close to the presence of God, um, the Christ, the spirit, all of that can live more fully And when we have a healed relationship with God, we can actually be more fully present in our relationships with one another uh, in daily life and community, et cetera. Thank you, both of you. Um, You said a lot of really great things, and I have jotted down a few notes um, for my own reflection. But well, and and the reason why I think this matters is because from my perspective, I... um, I very much can become what I can see or I'm a visual learner. I can, um, you know, identify like, okay, this quality is something I want. And so I can see it and I can work for it. Um, And within Mormonism um, that, and maybe it was my Mormon background that kind of gave me that um, way of learning um, because uh, Mormons are taught, you know, learning by progression, line upon line. Um, Those are big, big underscores of, of how we understand God and theology and the gospel. And so for me, I remember as a little girl, um, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, the concept of Heavenly Mother was really, really important because if God is a man, I had no representation in that. And so me as a Mormon woman um, and, and, and as a Mormon child, um, I just kept waiting for additional information and how do I have a relationship with heavenly mother? And I remember being chastised as a child um, because I would pray to the mother God and I got in trouble for it. And and so everything that you guys are saying um, from my perspective, when I think of eight-year-old Brittany, um, just how much I would have loved to just be able to rest in the mystery and to be able to claim um, even that little corner of the feminine divine um, and to be able to, not say that heavenly mother or the mother God is kind of in the shadows cast away and we're not allowed to talk about her. We're not allowed to explore that aspect of God um, because God was so male growing up. Um, And that leaves out a huge chunk of the population, not just women. Um, I mean, I think Robin, you know, had had called it a binary before in in this podcast. Um, Yeah. And when you think of God as fully male, Um, and the counterpart is fully female, you know, where does that leave an entire community that doesn't identify with either or? Um, And so I just want to underscore um, why this conversation is so important. But I also understand that people want certainty. And so to be able to point to God and say, God is a male, um, I can see why that is is appealing. Um, But a lot of Christians are okay of just resting in the mystery that is God. Um, and so can we talk a little bit more about that? And what does that actually look like to let go of certain certainty, um, to let go of, of this idea that we have God pinned down um, and defined very exactly? So I think like a few things come to my mind. 
when you when you mention this and 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 first of all i think that if you can pin god down precisely you can be pretty darn sure that what you have just done is create an idol (laughs) (laughs) that the that simply by looking at what we know which is not actually all that much about the world and the universe and humanity and and who we are and how it works and and all of these things and understanding that there's infinite amounts of um, knowledge and intricate detail that to imagine that you could possibly conjure up in your mind the definitive concept of what brought that into being um, is is foolish, um, quite frankly. Um, now, I think that just because we have to accept with humility that God's mystery is something that we will never, ever be able to unpack or solve, right? We're not going to solve the mystery of God. That there are still things on which we can place the orientation of our lives or toward which we can orient our lives. And I think that um, coming from a construct where you have to know, right? Like I know X, Y, Z about God. I know X, Y, Z fact versus living into uh, an unknown um, still with enough confidence to make decisions and to face the world um, is the difference uh, between like um, knowing and faith, right? That that's what faith is. It's not mentally assenting to a series of theological or other propositions, but rather it's saying, I could be wrong about this, but I am so compelled by the notion that at the thing at the heart of the universe is love that I'm willing to bet my life on it. And if I'm wrong, I can live with that, you know? And so the mystery is something that if you approach it from that perspective, instead of feeling like you need to know and understand and parse and kind of, you know, have a checklist or whatever of all the right answers. But if, if you can let yourself just sort of ease into that, um, you will discover, at least I have, that there is more than a lifetime worth of riches and insight and wisdom uh, that you can explore. So I think um, too, that we need to understand the amount of influence that the modern age modernity has had on religion and how we think about God, that the early um, church fathers, you know, Theophilus of Antioch, Tertullian, Uh, Augustine, Athanasius, uh, the Cappadocian Fathers, all of those great thinkers of the Christian faith were very well aware that they were dancing around this mystery that they were trying to somehow um, define, at least loosely define, in some theological terms that kept the boat on the water, so to speak. Um, so that we didn't set up idols for ourselves in, in certitude. And it, it was only with um, the modern age, the sci- 
scientific method, um, the advancement. I mean, wonderful, wonderful things that humanity has been able to do, um, curing diseases, going into space. I mean, all kinds of things have been blessings of the modern age, but it also, in a sense, um, put us into this uh, fact equals truth uh, and this way of looking at the world that brought, it, it took the mystery out because now we could explore the mystery and solve the problems um, of the world. And so part of younger generations gift to us is this openness to mystery again. And uh, we're coming full circle and realizing how it's only been in recent years that we have robbed ourselves of the richness of the mystery and fooled ourselves that we can define God in black and white, or for those that say you can't do that, so it must be false, um, have let go of that sense of uh, divine, which has been a loss as well. And sometimes that can help us as we step back and take the broader view, understand uh, that this sense of mystery has been with humanity much, much, much longer than the black and white of certitude in regards to faith uh, and religion. And um, Katie brought this up earlier, but I think to to kind of take a trip through the biblical text, the biblical scripture, and read um, in the Old Testament especially, there's so much rich uh, language and um, just this sense of free flow almost in some of the passages that can help us uh, reintroduce ourselves to the way humanity has experienced God and tried to put that into words to pass it on generation to generation can be helpful practices as well. Of course, I, th- I think spiritual practices in general um, can be really helpful uh, for us to experience the divine presence in lots of different ways uh, that can help us rest in that mystery. So Robin, I, I like that you talked about younger generations kind of gifting us um, back this concept of mystery. Um, and, and when I think of the Trinity and um, specifically resting in the mystery that is God, um, that's kind of where my brain goes because um, I think that with, with the internet era and with this postmodern world that we live in, um, we are a lot more connected to other cultures than we have been in the past, um, which I think has been a, a big gift in kind of breaking um, maybe our own worldviews um, as we interact with society. Uh, and I like that you have talked about the Trinity being about relationship, because to me, that is what our theology should always point us to is, you know, reconciling relationships on earth and with God and humanity and the planet. Um, and so, so when I think of why this all matters um, and, and why the concept of God being genderless, I mean, all genders without gender, beyond gender, um, it helps me see the God in other people, and I don't um, mm. try to put them in a box because um, that's that's how I interact with the divine most frequently um, is just through interactions with people. Um, 
and call that spirit, call that God, the father, call that Jesus. I don't claim to put that in a box either. Um, but that it, it liberates me to be able to see the divine in a wide variety of people because I haven't put God in a box. Um, and so I, I am able to recognize God in others. And I think that, um, when we talk about millennials or, um, you know, upcoming generations, um, being so connected to each other, whether that's digitally um, or in other ways, that uh, that's one benefit of Trinity and of this concept of God, that it breaks down all of those stereotypes that we might have. And then if we view God that way, then maybe we'll view other people that way. Do you have any thoughts on why this would be helpful for young people, Katie? Well, as a very old person now, <laughs> I know right? the ripe old age of thirty-six. Are, no, I feel very, I feel very old uh, anymore. My anyway, my daughter tells me all the time how old I am. My eleven-year-old, <laughs> so that's great. I think that we live in a you know, Brittany, your your point about how we live in such a, a connected age and a connected time is really at, like that. It's spot on. And that to a certain extent, what has emerged <laughs> is sort of a spiritual consumerism. I, I think in my generation and, and in the younger generation as well, that there's this sort of like picking and choosing, right? So I'm going to take a little bit of CrossFit and I'm going to take a little bit of Buddhism and I'm going to take a little bit of mindful, you know, relaxation and I'm going to take a little bit of Netflix, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I'm going to put it all together and I'm going to make meaning. And there is something very liberating about that. Uh, and there is something, you know, kind of exciting and adventurous about that. Um, but I think that where that falls short is in the ability to go super deep um, with a coherent symbol system. And ultimately, I think the sort of king and choosing um, ends up leaving us kind of empty. And I think that millennials are um, searching. Uh, and I think just like uh, all of us want um, connection and meaning and something to stake our lives on. And the church, meaning the church writ large, not any particular denomination, um, has done a horrible job <laughs> of communicating the riches of this particular tradition of the Christian tradition. Now, I, you know, full disclosure, you know, believe, and I don't know this, but I believe, I happen to believe that it's true as well, that God is this dynamic interplay of love, um, this that this spark of all that is at the very core of the universe is the loving interaction of the triune God. Um, but even if you're not like to a place where you could make a claim like that, you know, I think there's something to beginning to um, dive deep, and that there's tremendous value in seeing what happens. Um, and allowing for a little discipline as well as playfulness mm -hmm. in your spiritual journey. So I've been interviewing some millennials in Community of Christ for a new series that we're starting. Uh, and, and a lot of your thoughts are what their thoughts are as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
while we do live in a very connected society today, um, a lot of that community has been lost at the same time. And so for me, I know when, like I was um, debating on whether to stick with organized religion or not, the idea, I was just so intrigued by this idea of, of, a, of a Christian community that has lasted thousands of years following this man, following this story, following this God, um, and then realizing how liberating the gospel was to women Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at it in its purest form, I would say, I don't know, purest, not the right word, but you know, <laughs> how it was intended. Um, and then recognizing kind of the, the points of where maybe it got off, off the tracks and, and uh, started oppressing women and really buckled down on LGBT issues and, and things like that. Um, but I'm so intrigued by this idea of rewriting the story and reclaiming Christianity for what it has, what it, what it's meant to be. Um, and so when I think of the triune God, um, that gives me a framework to be able to work with um, a, a God that, that speaks to me and a God that I see myself in and I see God in me. And, and it's, and it's this relationship that is supported by community, um, which is, which is something that I, I don't know, I guess I'm still, I, I, I guess I'm still surprised sometimes that I stuck it out with Christianity. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then, you know, I think like, man, Britt, what are you doing? But then I'm like, no, but I really do. And I, and I do believe it. I, I do believe that, um, you know, religion has such a, a heavy influence in society and religion has historically um, as, as well as today. And so to be part of that liberation within the church um, is a really exciting thing. And through the concept of the Trinity, through the essence of the Trinity, through the movement and the dance of the Trinity, um, I feel like we're given a pretty good model of, of how the peaceable kingdom should be on earth today. So uh, Robin, do you have any final thoughts or? Well, I really appreciate what both uh, Brittany and Katie, you all have shared in reflections um, from the perspective of the generation that you represent and how this hunger for community is growing in the world. And, you know, I think, I think one of the lessons that we learn from Jesus, from God revealed uh, through Jesus Christ is this uh, interconnectedness of spirit and physical. So this, um, and, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, that God is not far off in some distant place on a throne, but God is right here with us in the trenches of everything we face and uh, through the gift of the spirit, um, that presence can be fully felt, um, experienced, tasted, um, mm. that, that there's so much grounding and rootedness available to us as we um, experience this divine presence uh, and allow um, that vision of God's dream for the world to capture us in ways that have very practical application to the everyday. So we don't have to be uh, gifted theologians that can speak fluent doctrine of the Trinity. We can experience uh, 
this divine mystery presence in ways that help us see what can be and, um, and become a source of courage for making a difference in the world uh, and in our everyday relationships. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of younger people who have that hunger being willing to, to turn and take another look at faith and what that might mean to, to wonder, is there something here that can make a difference, not just for me, but for my world? And is that something uh, that has a place for me to have an active part of uh, experiencing change and transformation in the world, even if it's just, you know, step by step. I think that it's really exciting and I am inspired. I'm inspired by both of you and I'm inspired by many other young people I see in our world today who have such insight and awareness uh, and a hunger. And I think that that hunger uh, in all of us is pulling us closer into that mystery and to um, a willingness to experience community on a deeper level that is so life-giving. Thank you. So thank you, you two. Um, Like Robin had mentioned, we have um, some resources to share um, listed on our website um, with this post. Uh, Some of them are going to be book recommendations. Uh, We also have a full podcast episode on the Trinity, um, as well as Katie did one with Priscilla Eppinger on ecofeminism, which was really good. That was a good one. It was. Yeah. So we, we have talked, talked about this topic, um, you know, more or less before. Um, but yeah, we're going to throw on some book recommendations, um, some Bible commentaries from female perspectives, um, a great book by Joan Chittister, um, about spirituality for men and women. So some of my favorite titles are on here. I think we, Robin also had a sisters in the wilderness, which is a really good womanist commentary from the black female perspective, which is really awesome. I want to put a plug for a new book I've been reading. It's by Elizabeth Johnson and I, I really am enjoying it. And I think it kind of captures some of what we've talked about tonight. The title is she who is the mystery of God in feminist theological discourse. And it's really rich. It's a, it's a great one. I love that you're reading that. I read most of it. I don't know, a year or so ago when I was really trying to figure this stuff out. So yeah, the point is, is that there actually is a lot of theological conversation about the divine feminine and the female aspect of God um, and and how that actually looks in the world in, like Robin said, very practical ways. So thank you guys. I'm really excited that this episode finally got recorded. Yay! And... Stop. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries 
or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. Josh will probably put that in the blooper.